we either move forward or we stay stuck. We either get enamored with understanding, oh, look at why I did this and did that and all, you know, or we say, I got it. Now, what do I want? That's a hard question to answer. And that's what a dream will do then. As we move in a progression of dreams, we'll get the message of how you're organizing your experience. Then we start getting hints about what you might want to look at. I am Cheryl Witten, and this is The Aromatherapist, where we discover the superpower of plants. One of the biggest problems in aromatherapy is conflicting information and crazy wild claims. All you have to do is search essential oils on the internet, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So when you're looking for information, how do you know who to trust, and how do you know what's right? Well, that's the reason I created this podcast, and a course called Science of Aromatherapy. The Science of Aromatherapy course takes you through aromatherapy as a healing art and the history and modern use of essential oils. You'll learn the basics of aromatherapy, the science and chemistry of essential oils, contraindications and safety considerations, and clinical and personal applications. In this course, I take you through everything from how aromatherapy affects epilepsy and bleeding disorders to drug interactions, allergies and sensitivities, and to use in pregnancy and breastfeeding, and even with children. We cover the main modes of application and profiles of the 10 most popular essential oils. By the end of the course, you'll understand the most common contraindications and safety guidelines, how to use essential oils, how to build a protocol, and how to choose, cross-reference, and eliminate essential oils, as well as how to formulate, blend, and dilute essential oils, and so much more. So why should you learn from me? Well, I'm a clinical aromatherapist and I've been working with essential oils for around 20 years. I've trained with some of the world's renowned botanists and aromatherapy experts, and I teach people all over the world about aromatherapy. I also happen to be a professional health writer and have published peer-reviewed research work in aromatherapy. It's no longer necessary to be confused about aromatherapy. Let me guide you to clarity. Visit livelovelemon.com forward slash science dash course to enroll. My guest today is Will Sharon, who describes himself as the coach who works with dreams. And Will started out his career working in psychiatric hospitals as a teacher in a children's unit, and then went on as a unit chief for an adolescent service and got his clinical degree in social work and worked as a therapist at the Veterans Administration. And during that time, he worked with dreams and experienced the healing power in people with severe trauma. After 13 years, he decided to experience life in a different way and explored a number of different careers. He worked in acting, went to law school for a year and a half before realizing that he didn't want to argue for a living, and started a career in telecommunications where he landed a job on Wall Street in the IT department of a brokerage house. And from there, he had a long career in the corporate world working for some really big name companies like EF Hutton, JP Morgan, McCann World Group. And then in his 50s, he was fired for the first time of his life for no cause. He spent several years trying to get back into a position like the one he had and in the process lost everything that he had worked for. And at one point, he was saving empty boxes to keep in the kitchen cabinets so that his kids wouldn't think they were running out of food. And he began to write down his dreams. And they informed him of a larger purpose, which felt insufficiently vague at a time when he was struggling for survival, but they kept him going. And so finally he gave up trying to enter the corporate world and became 
what he says is probably the oldest personal trainer in Manhattan. And he helped people get back into their bodies. From there, he entered a coaching program and became certified as a coach, where he now works as a a coach who works with dreams. So I had a really interesting conversation with, with Will. And when we finished chatting, I kept thinking about our conversation for a really long time. I really wanted to talk to Will because of his very practical take on dreaming and understanding that this is part of our psychological experience in maybe in a way that we don't necessarily understand and can be just another way that we experience ourselves and work through life and all of the things we encounter. And so this conversation was extremely fascinating for me. And so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Without further ado, Will Sharon. Hi, Will. Welcome to the show. So much. I really appreciate being here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved in holistic health? Well, as a young man, I talked my way into um, being a teacher in the children's unit in a psychiatric hospital in uh, Manhattan, not really knowing anything about what I was doing at all. Um, And that I thought was going to be a year or two, and it turned into 13 years, and a clinical master's degree, and then I got involved um, at the VA clinic in Manhattan, uh, working with a lot of guys who had come back from Vietnam and were really not adjusting very well. And it was at a time where we didn't know anything about PTSD. That was not a diagnostic Mm -hmm. category. So in the beginning of this, for me, I was immersed in a tremendous amount of pathology. And, And the way we could define that pathology is to say, these are people who had a really tough time navigating, you know, the mundane world. Uh, they were not functioning. And when that ended, and there's a, about a 30-year period in my life that's not relevant to where I went into the corporate world, et cetera. When that was done, I was not old enough for health insurance and uh, thought, well, best thing to do is to stay healthy. So I became probably the oldest personal trainer in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent three years getting people back into their bodies. And It was an amazing experience in terms of what happens to people emotionally when they reconnect with Mm -hmm. their physical being. And so that started to kind of play in my mind. I mean, I was working one-on-one and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go back and recertify my master's. And I discovered it would take me more than two years to recertify my master's. Mm -hmm. So don't do that. I get a coaching certificate, which I did. Now, all kinds of issues with the coaching world. But one of the things that I found really interesting was there is this fundamental idea that says we are naturally whole, creative and resourceful. In other words, the answers are within us, right? Mm -hmm. That was a big shift in my work because when I was working with dreams at the VA, I was, quote, interpreting dreams, which means I was taking somebody else's experience and telling them what it meant. And I, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't doing a very good job of it, (laughs) (laughs) but it's not a job that should be done, Right. It's my job now is to help people understand what they're talking to themselves about. And uh, so that shifted my work a lot. And then as I became a coach, I started teaching other coaches how to work with dreams because, you know, I I tend to take things literally. If we're naturally whole, wholeness is 24 hours, not 16. Mm -hmm. We dream. So that's just another experience that we have. And I guess I taught for about three and a half years. I just finished up this year. I think I'm going to transition into something else. But that's been sort of the arc of how I got to where I am, uh, which is is really trying to talk to people about this experience they have as ordinary. Dreaming is ordinary. It's it's part of your day. 
if you if you want to pay attention to it. I love that. I love that you've gone sort of from that telling role into the guiding role. And I think that in any work that you do in health and practitioners, that's an important shift, understanding mm -hmm. that you can't fix people. You just have to help them fix themselves because that's literally what our bodies do is heal themselves. And mm -hmm. we just need to, you know, get through our own experience. So I love that. And I, I appreciate what you were saying about working with the veterans before we really had understanding of PTSD. And I'm so interested in how you're using dreams as part of that therapy. And so dreams are something that we've always, you know, sort of had a mystical element to, and there's always been sort of a view within them in many traditions that they're sort of visions, um, or we have meaning in our dreams. And I think we still ask that question, why do we dream? And psychology research says that they're either useless, they don't do anything, they're just, we don't really know why we have them, they mean nothing, or they're a way of resolving our emotions and experiences. So what, why do we dream? Why do you feel that we dream? Well, okay. So let me come at that a, a couple of different ways. First of all, in the modern era, we have these two words, subconscious and unconscious. And as I started teaching and I had been a therapist, right? I realized, wait a minute, I don't really know the difference between these two words. Why do we have these two words? Turns out a guy named Pierre Genet came up with this term subconscious, right? And, and when you read his definition, it seems to me that what he did was conflate cognition, thinking, with consciousness. And so if you couldn't think about it, it was, I mean, sub means less. Mm -hmm. It was less conscious. And then he got in a fight with Freud, who he accused of plagiarism. And Freud said, well, the hell with you, it's unconscious, and came up with the usual Freudian thing, right? So in a way, for the last 100 years or so, we've been driven a little crazy with this idea that our consciousness is fractured into these various buckets of whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So one idea would be to say, well, maybe that's not useful anymore. Maybe we should see ourselves as conscious beings. The universe is conscious. We have a whole, you know, a whole area of physics that talks about that, right? So if we are conscious then there is a range of experience in that consciousness that allows us to access it. So, for example, I have, I have a lot of artists who are clients, right? Well, they have become aware of an aspect of their consciousness that allows them to see the world in a particular way. They see a world in a particular way. I don't. I'm not an artist, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So why do we dream? Well, it's, it, in, in a way, it's a funny question. It's like, why do we breathe? Why mm -hmm. do we see? Why do we? I don't quite know how to answer that question other than to reposition it and sort of say, well, why wouldn't we dream? Right. You know, this is part of our experience as human. And it's, it's no different than, so let's say you go, you're going to meet somebody for a cup of coffee you never met. You figure it's going to be half an hour or whatever, right? And it turns into four and a half hour conversation. And that conversation lives in you for a week, two weeks, maybe years, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. And you go back and you re revisit that conversation, right? Well, in a way, that's the same thing we can do with our dreams. They are, they are half a conversation spoken in a different language that we can revisit and allow those dreams to inform us without having to, quote, decide, unquote, what they mean. Meaning is a cognitive function. We take something that's been created in a completely different way, and we insist that it has meaning. And when we get the meaning, we discard the experience. Right. We don't need it anymore, right? So the answer to your question, I guess, is what I said is like, why wouldn't we dream? Why, you know, why wouldn't we cry? Why wouldn't we laugh? It's who we are. Another level of being, essentially. Yeah. 
Right. So what happens when we're dreaming? What happens in the brain? What happens? There's so little we really understand about it, but for those who maybe aren't familiar, can you speak to a little bit about that? Sure. There's been a lot of research on this thing called REM sleep, rapid eye movement. Okay. And initially the thinking was that we dream when we have this rapid eye movement. And it's important to know, well, how do we know that? Well, what happens is they take you into a lab and hook you up with a bunch of electrodes. And when you go into REM sleep, they wake you up and they say, are you dreaming? And you go, yeah. And they go, okay, great. That's where now we have the correlation. I'm not so sure. But here's something that's really interesting that I discovered a couple of years ago. There's a guy named Meyer Krieger, and he's from the Yale School of Medicine. And he is a you know, pretty big deal in the, in the rapid eye movement experimentation and all that stuff. I don't know why he decided to do this, but he decided to look in another part of the body. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what he wrote. He says, and every time a man dreams, he has an erection. And every time a woman dreams, the blood vessels of her vagina become engorged. These changes in our genitalia are apparently unrelated to sexual thought before sleep or to sexual content in the dreams themselves. Rather, erections and vaginal engorement seems to be the result of the state of dreaming itself. Well, that was pretty interesting, right? Yeah, it is interesting, yeah. So what that tells me is that the biology of the experience of dreaming is full body. Mm-hmm. And we have focused on the brain. Neuroscience is fascinating. I mean, you know, it, but it's also young. It's about 25, 30 years old. We just figured out what the lymphatic system was in the brain about 18 <laughs> months ago, right? <laughs> so so we're, we're extrapolating an awful lot of information out of not a lot of information. But that discovery really begins to bring into our awareness this idea of whether the biology causes the dream or does the dream cause the biology? obviously I've signed up for the the latter idea. Dreaming is something that activates aspects of our biology. And another way to look at it is logos and eros, cognition and eroticism. And eroticism in the West, unfortunately, is confined to sex, Mm -hmm. but it's not. You know, we can live an erotic life with the food we eat, with the smells we smell, with the music we listen to, if we allow ourselves the experience of it. And so Krieger, I mean, I, I don't I don't really track that stuff. I don't know where he's gone with this idea, but it's really phenomenal. I mean, it's not in the public awareness that, at least that I'm aware of, that this is what the body does when we dream. Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, we I think maybe we have recognition around, you know, like wet dreams and that kind of thing, but that's about as far as it goes, as far as... Yeah what actually can happen in the body. So how does it relate to then the body experience to trauma and PTSD? Because dreaming can be a really big part of those states of mental health and can be a really sort of tough experience. So how does that relate to that? And you know, the trauma and triggers maybe that you might experience that affect dreaming. Okay. If Again, if I sort of look at the bookends of my life where I worked with a lot of pathology initially, and now I work with what, for lack of a better term, we could call high-functioning adults, okay? Mm-hmm. People who are in the world who are not dealing with the fundamental issues of how to be in the world. So there, there are different approaches. So what I'm going to talk about in terms of PTSD and trauma is not something I do today, but I've spent a fair amount of time looking at, and there's a movie that Tim Ferriss sponsored. It's an Israeli documentary where they use MDMA with people who have PTSD. What's MDMA? It's an, it's an empathogenic. It's, it's a heart opener, right? 
And in the, in the literature, everybody's going, oh, MDMA, this is great for PTSD. Yeah, except you got to look at what, what actually goes on, which is that you revisit the trauma as you take MDMA. Right. It is not a walk in the park, to put it mildly. It's extraordinarily painful. But what's really happening? And here we can sort of conflate the two different groups that I work with, right? What's happening is you're becoming aware of what that experience is means to you, how it changed your perception. In other words, how it created a prism through which you see all experience. And once you allow, once you step into that and go through that, then you're able to look at it differently. You're able to experience it differently. So let me give you an example of what we'll call a high functioning adult. Let's say there's a kid who grows up whose father beats him. And he decides as a young child that he has to take it, but he's never going to be victimized again. And so what does he do? He goes into the world and he ends up working with people who have also been beaten because he understands and can hear them and they know he can hear them, right? And that carries him a long way until it doesn't. And why doesn't it? Because it impacts his relationships with people. Again, think of a prism. Life is conflict and life is pain and life, you're right? except life isn't. There's an aspect of life that's like that. But as you grow and mature, there's a demand from your soul that you step into the fullness of who you are. And that's the point in time when we, we have what we call midlife crisis, or we have what we call a, a breakdown or whatever, because literally that construct doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what else to do, right? Those are the people I work with a lot. It's like they've outlived their biographies the way that they have constructed their life based on their trauma, based on what we could call their wound, doesn't work anymore. And so there is a demand to refine, in a way, refine the, the wound. It's like it never goes away, mm -hmm. but you create enough experience so that it has a much smaller space in you than it did before. And I think that's, you know, what they're doing with MDMA with, with these, these folks who have PTSD is they're they're literally going into the depths of the wound to get a perspective on it so that you can have other experiences that don't look through that particular prism that begin to crowd it out mm -hmm. in terms of your daily life. So that's how I, I tend to think about that. It's interesting. I was just reading something about this recently. It was a psychologist talking about using MDMA and ketamine and mushrooms and all the different things, psychedelics as part of therapy that while that can help you through that experience, the key part is the therapy along with it to integrate all of those pieces so that they become an embodied experience. And I think that's sort of what you're saying as well. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, Cheryl, you are. And I think you've hit on something that is really kind of a missing piece in as we step into using these drugs, which are phenomenal. I mean, you know, if I had, if I was starting over 20 years ago, I would really get into this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of integration in these experiences. And what I always say to people is insight without action is useless. Mm -hmm. It's just another cathartic experience that goes nowhere. And, and so in a way you can do yourself more damage by yeah, not yeah. really understanding what this is about. It, yeah, it's an opening. It's a big opening that allows you to make big strides, but then you have to integrate it. You know, then you got to live your life with that awareness. And I would say one other thing, you know, the other model we're kind of stuck with is this model of pathology, is this model of wounded trauma and problem. 
And, which is not to say that that's all wrong. I mean, life can be very painful, but we get very focused on the problem and we get very focused on the wound. And a lot of times, again, when people come to me, I always say to them, you know, you, you've earned a PhD in the problem. Yeah. You understand what the problem is. <laughs> yeah. The question yeah. is, what do you want? Now, what do you want? You know, and, and that's where I think we're, we're trying to transition and we will transition, which is not to say you ignore all the, the trauma and the wound and the pain. I'm not saying that at all, but life is more than that. Life, you have those painful experiences to give you this awareness that allows you to appreciate the wonder of being human. Yeah. And it, it's that cycle that happens that when you, you relive it, you just relive it. That's what you're doing. You're just reliving it and it's not being worked into your consciousness. So how do we, how do we work with these things then? What do we do in order to understand if we're not analyzing dreams, how do we understand what we need from them? How do we work with them? How do we try to, to understand what we're trying to organize in our life? Okay. So not all dreams, but a lot of dreams are showing us how we're organizing our experience. So for example, I have a client who has these dreams where she's got a lot of bravado. She's sort of the rebel and, you know, telling people what's what and all this kind of stuff. And that's been useful for her uh, in her life because it's propelled her forward. What the dream is showing her now is, well, you know, that's kind of getting in your way because you've reached the point where you have a lot more to offer people than rebellion, right? So then we have to say, well, okay, why did she come up with that strategy in the first place? Why is she living her life that way? And this is an unfortunate aspect of the coaching world. There's this idea of something called an inner critic, mm -hmm. right? You have this part of you that's stopping you and blah, blah, blah. It's not helpful to think of it that way. This strategy was born probably out of a six or seven or four-year-old child mm -hmm. who had very little experience in the world and who was trying to keep herself sane, right? So first thing we need to do is honor those things, honor those aspects of ourselves that are not working anymore because they came from a place that was a place of love for oneself. Fighting against them is a mistake, I think. Mm -hmm. So we learn about them, we honor them, and then we literally have an interior conversation that says, I get why you did that and I'm grateful you did that, but I don't need that anymore. I'm okay, I'm safe. Mm -hmm. So that we can develop new strategies. And that's always the, you know, that's the, we, we've sort of been talking about this. That's the point at which we either move forward or we stay stuck. We either get enamored with understanding, oh, look at why I did this and did that and all, you know, or we say, I got it, now what do I want? That's a hard question to answer because what you desire doesn't come from your brain. Your brain can help you figure it out, how to move on it once you understand what it is, but you're not gonna find it there. And that's what a dream will do then. As we move in a progression of dreams, we'll get the message of how you're organizing your experience. Then we start getting hints about what you might want to look at, what you might want to be interested in. And, and that's how the movement happens. And I see what you're saying about why, where we get stuck with, the, with analyzing as well and trying to interpret things because yeah. we try to decide what we want from our brain, but that's not how it works. Right. It's not. It'd be great if it was, but it isn't. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. So... There's very little that we understand, and we've we've been talking about that already, but about the brain, and we don't know really about the mind, and we really don't understand very much about consciousness. So rather than trying to 
interpret them. You talk about, as you've been saying about them, having them live in us. So how do we actually really embody them then? How do we go forward and sort of embrace that into ourselves? Because that it's a sort of a abstract idea, like for someone who's used to analyzing, how do we, how do we get out of that, that state? Okay. So let's, let's extrapolate from Krieger's discovery. So now we know there's two places in the body that dreams seem to affect. There's another guy, he's Australian, and he wrote a couple of books, uh, something called MBIT, Multiple Brain Integration Techniques, terrible name. <laughs> what, what was he doing? He looked at the brain and he came up with, I think, seven or eight criteria of what a brain embodied, certain kinds of cells and chemical reactions and neural pathways, all this stuff, right? And he started looking around the body. Where else do we have this? Well, it turns out we have a brain in our heart. We have a brain in our gut. Mm -hmm. And after he wrote the book, he discovered we have a brain in our genitalia and a brain in our skin. So first step is becoming aware that you are informed through this physical body in a whole variety of ways. That's physical. That's science. That is a fact mm -hmm. that, that this experience of being human in terms of the physical aspect of it comes from a whole bunch of different places. You know, I just stopped eating wheat about two weeks ago. Oh, how's that going? <laughs> it's great. My body is going, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because I'm being informed. This is good. Don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so that's sort of, again, that's a physical, scientific answer to embracing this experience that's not stuck in our heads. And, and, and let's, let's just acknowledge it's not easy in the culture we live in to, to give validity to something that we can't think about. Mm -hmm. We are so stuck in this idea of thinking. I mean, I have a sign over my desk that's got profanity in it, but I'll clean it up. It's from Bob Dylan. He says, thought will F you up every time, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's literally talking to ourselves about the science that is available that's telling us that our experience is not just this cognitive function. The other thing I want to say is, you know, we have this idea that the ancients had this mystical thing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure they thought it was mystical. I think we think it's mystical, mm -hmm. right? I think they thought it was life. This was like how it worked. So we have this idea of precognitive dreams, mm -hmm. right? Interesting, interesting term, pre, before thinking. It probably would have been better uncognitive, like right. not thinking, right? Uncognitive dreams. And what are they? They are when you dream about something that happens in the future. So mothers do this a lot. They have a dream about their kid is went in the hospital and they wake up their kids in the hospital. If you think about it from the standpoint that we are involved in what we call linear time, right? One thing happens after another, after another, after another. Mm -hmm. And so Einstein tells us, you know, reality or linear time is an illusion, albeit a persistent, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that one thing happens after another, after another, after another is not really true. We all operate as though it was true. And we'd have a hard time if we didn't. But there are other aspects of time where you literally, from the aspect of learning, borrow from the future. And people, you know, people get a little nutty, including me, when I first started doing this. It was like, yeah, I'm not so sure. That seemed a little weird, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just happened enough so that, you know, it happens. It's true, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, what do we do with that? And it gets back to you, well, how do we, how do we deal with this, right? Well, what we do with it is we go, okay, that's an aspect of my experience. I can't force it. 
you know, I can't go, okay, is the stock market going to go up tomorrow? Can I have a dream mm -hmm. about that? Probably not. But we just recognize it as part of being human. That doesn't, quote, make sense, unquote. It's just an aspect of who we are. And that life gets pretty rich as we begin to allow ourselves to have these experiences without them overwhelming us, without our, our insistence that we categorize them in some way and sort of put ourselves in a club with other people that are different from mm -hmm. people who don't or any, any of that stuff. It's just normal. It's just okay for you to do that and have those experiences. On this show and what I talk about with my clients all the time is that you are all of the pieces of yourself and your health is all of your whole body. It's your whole being. That is, that is who you are. And we have to look at the whole being in order to have health. And I think there's actually a psychologist a researcher who says that dreams are the place where you heal. And so I think that is pretty incredible too, that that can be a place embodiment and healing in your own self too. So I love that. It's just another piece of who you are. So yes. what about the people who don't dream or can't remember their dreams then? How can, can we encourage this dream state? Is there things we should be doing? I mean, most of us are terrible with sleep hygiene. Yeah. Should we encourage it? Like, what do you think we should do here? Well, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's free will is a choice like anything else. I mean, when people tell me they can't remember their dreams, the first thing is, what are you trying to remember, right? Right. And so one way to think about it is, well, you're trying to remember half of a conversation spoken in a different language. That's what a dream is, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that in a way you got to relax a bit, you know, it's like, because it's going to come to you from a different place than your thinking does. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the enemies of remembering your dreams is your alarm clock, mm. <laughs> because what does it do? It just jars you into this state of, be, of waking. And look, some people got to have them, right? Yeah, they got kids to get up and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't have to, if you have a partner who can get up or whatever, just don't use an alarm clock. And when you wake up, don't move. Just stay there and see what comes up, and see if you can stop yourself from thinking for three minutes. So one is, what are we remembering? The second one is, there's a story to a dream. One could say that dreams are really the model for literature and poetry, right? We were dreaming before we wrote anything down. Mm -hmm. uh, we were dreaming before we made up songs, before we told stories. And, and, and a dream has all the elements of a story, right? It's got a location and characters and action and an arc mm -hmm. of what the story is. So you're trying to remember a story. And one of the things that is always, you know, in, in, in some of the clients I work with initially a struggle is, look, you got to write the story down. No, I can't listen to a recording of it. It's not me. It's not good for you. Why? Because you need the story. You need that literal understanding of what happened in your head. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because what are we going to do with it? Now, when you tell the story, first of all, now you're going to feel the emotion of it when you tell it. And when you tell it to someone else who is actually listening to it, you hear things you couldn't hear before. Okay, so I've gotten past your question, which is how do we remember our dreams? One thing I always say to people, you know, sometimes somebody will say, I'd love to work with you, but I can't remember my dreams. It's like, you know what, make an appointment. Why? Because as we were talking about before, it's an aspect of your experience that has no audience. No, Nobody's, you're not interested. Yeah. You haven't been interested. <laughs> you're not remember them. <laughs> Right. So now you got an appointment with this guy next Wednesday to tell a dream. Well, there's part of you that goes, oh, cool. OK, here's a dream. You can go talk to this guy now. Right. So it's the creation of an audience for the dream. And that's why, you know, we're relational beings. You know, mm -hmm. we, everybody wants to do this stuff 
I always remember this Brene Brown story where she talks about vulnerability and this guy comes up afterwards and he goes, yeah, I'm going to try this vulnerability thing out on my own for a while <laughs> and then see. And it's like, no, dude, that doesn't it, work. Doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It's, it's the same thing with a dream. It's like, it's an experience that, that requires a human communication, the telling of the dream, the telling mm. of the story. And by the way, you don't want to tell a dream to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. Don't yeah, right. That. Yeah. You know? So it's those things. It's audience. It's what are you trying to remember, which sounds like, well, I'm trying to remember my dream. Yeah, but there's more to it. Mm-hmm. You're trying to remember literally something you're telling yourself, but in a different language. That's what you're trying to remember. And if you have that in your head, and then yes, you know, a pad and a pen by your bedside is useful. You make notes. I, I usually dream two o'clock in the morning, something like that. I make notes. I get up. I have a dream book. I write it down. You know, it's, it, you ritualize it and, and uh, they come, you know. I have to say, I experimented with my dreams as well and done the uh, recording the dreams. And I know that when I start to record them, I have more dreams. They, it's like that active, I think it's, you know, actually physically writing it too is like, it, that's an action, Yeah. you know, that's a feeling in your body. You're putting it two things together there. But also I definitely noticed that I would, I had more dreams, way more dreams when, as soon as I started recording. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Will. It was so great to, to talk to you and I'm love this conversation. I find it so fascinating. So for our listeners, where can they learn more about you and more about your programs? Probably the best thing is my website, which is my name, willsharon.com. There's a library of videos, probably, I don't know, 50, 55 videos on, on, on there and my Instagram posts and there's a whole page about how to work with me. And so that's the best place to go. Beautiful. Well, we will link that up in the show notes and they can head over there to find you. So thank you so much for being here. It was wonderful to have you. Pleasure. Thanks. All right, beautiful people. Thank you so much for listening today. If you feel so inclined, please subscribe, rate, and review this show. For show notes and more information on essential oils, please visit livelovelemon.com forward slash podcast. And we love to know what you're up to and how you're using your essential oils. So head over to Instagram and find us at the Aromatherapist Podcast. My name is Cheryl Witten, and I am your aromatherapist. We have to share with you this obligatory disclaimer. Information in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement for medical advice or for professional aromatherapy consultation. If you need medical care, please visit your physician. Speak to your primary care provider, pharmacist, and a qualified aromatherapist before commencing any programs.